Religious terrorism has become commonplace in our lifetime. What causes a person to kill innocent strangers in the name of religion? Our guest today is uniquely qualified to address this question. He's an authority on comparative religion and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our special segment on disaster medicine. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. James Jones. Dr. Jones is a distinguished professor of religion and an adjunct professor of clinical psychology at Rutgers University in New Jersey. He's also a senior research fellow at the Center on Terrorism of John Jay College in New York City. In addition to practicing as a clinical psychologist, Dr. Jones is widely published. His latest book is Blood That Cries Out from the Earth. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Jones. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Now, what factors work to make ordinary people become so dangerous? Well, I think particularly in terms of people with a sort of religious orientation, I think what's going on there is that religious and spiritual longings can be very powerful for people, the need for a meaningful life, a sense of meaning and purpose, a sense of being connected to something greater, a sense of belonging to community. And when these very powerful religious and spiritual desires get hooked up with certain psychological longings, experiences of shame and humiliation, the need to see the world in black and white categories and split the world into opposing camps of pure against impure, a wrathful, punitive, vengeful deity or teacher, a connection of purification and bloodshed, a fascination with violence, an over-idealization of one's own tribe or nation. It's the combination of those powerful religious and spiritual strivings with these psychological factors that make up the psychological precondition for a turn towards religious violence and religious terrorism. And how does religion play into these themes? Well, I think religions often play upon and reinforce feelings of shame and humiliation. They often pass beyond humility, which is a virtue, into making people feel humiliated, which is a psychological problem. Religions often split the world into an apocalyptic cosmic battle of good against evil. They demonize the other. They make the other satanic, you know, and a demonic enemy can't be reasoned with. A demonic enemy can only be destroyed. Oftentimes, religions teach a theology of wrath and vengeance. While that's not traditional in any major world religion, it certainly becomes predominant in religious groups that turn towards terrorism. Sometimes they teach a connection between purification and bloody sacrifice, and sometimes they promote an uncritical over-idealization of their own teachings or their own tradition. And I think those are some of the ways that religions contribute uniquely to moving people in the direction of terrorism. Are certain religions more likely to produce violent extremists? No, no, I don't think so. I think you find terrorist movements across the religious spectrum and throughout history. So no one religion is more correlated with terrorism historically than any other religious tradition. Now, in your book, Blood That Cries Out from the Earth, you draw parallels between seemingly very different groups such as the Buddhist splinter group responsible for the Tokyo subway gas attacks, all the way to the anti-abortion crusade of the religious right here in this country. How do you connect those two? I think that's basically the point of the book, that there are certain themes, which I've already mentioned, there are certain themes that cut across all these different traditions. There are certain 
themes that are sort of on the boundary of spirituality and psychology that virtually all religiously motivated terrorists share. And say people who are community mental health people, or this is something I often say if I speak to people in community mental health or to police officers, you know, these things can be warning signs that a religion has the potential. It doesn't mean it's going to become, but if you have a religious group where the members really are subjected to profound experiences of shame and humiliation, or if you have a religious group that splits humanity into the all good against the all evil and demonizes the other, or if you have a religious group that has a very wrathful, punitive idea of God or the leader, if you have a group that has a conviction that purification requires the shedding of blood and bloody sacrifice, if you have a group that's fascinated with violence and has a lot of violence in its religious imagery, those are warning signs. That doesn't mean the group is necessarily going to become terroristic, but those are warning signs that a group has the potential to go in that direction. So if you have a patient that belongs to such a group, or if you're a community mental health person or a first responder, and you see groups that have those characteristics, they bear paying attention to, I think. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. James Jones. We're discussing the psychology of religious terrorism. And Dr. Jones, how can we best help our patients who might be struggling with some of these issues? Well, that's a good question, and I've been thinking about that question. And I think there's really three rather different groups that I can think of, of different groups of patients. There are people who have directly experienced a terrorist attack, people in New York or Washington on 9-11 or people in Oklahoma City or other such groups. And, and there it seems to me the the best thing is to think about the research on coping and the difference between positive and, and negative coping and people who use positive coping methods and encourage people to use positive coping methods to seek social support, to become involved in community service and help others, to maybe draw on their religious or spiritual resources if they have them, to become more self-reflective of their values and what's important in their life. I think those are the things that you see in people who have directly experienced a terrorist attack or any disaster that seem to lead to positive outcomes. If, on the other hand, the patient is nursing anger and revenge or is keeping their feelings bottled up or is withdrawing from friends or family, those are kind of warning signs, I think. So you have one group of patients who have directly experienced them. Then you have a large number of people. These are really the second group, the people that I really wrote this book for, Blood That Cries Out from the Earth, which are people who may not have directly experienced a terrorist attack but are trying to understand what motivates people to do this. And if people are struggling with that question, then, then I suppose I have to recommend my book, which is, I suppose, a typical academic <laughs> trick, but still. And then it seems to me there's a third group that we don't take so seriously, but there's research about this, that people who have experienced what we might call vicarious traumatization, and they may not have been there on 9-11 in New York. They may not have lost someone on 9-11 or in Oklahoma City. But they saw enough of it on television, or they read it enough about it in the newspaper, or on the Internet, that they were traumatized, even though they didn't live in an area where it was experienced directly in the way that, that, say, I did here in the New York metropolitan area. But I think we need to take that vicarious traumatization seriously and not to dismiss it and say, oh, well, you weren't there, you weren't really traumatized by it. No, people can be traumatized vicariously 
by seeing images on the TV or the Internet or the newspaper. So I think there are those three groups, and I think they need to be approached somewhat differently. And I think it's important to sort of differentiate those three groups. And certainly your mention of what we see on TV just today, there was another story about some car bomb blowing up a bunch of people. I mean, it seems almost relentless. Is there a risk at all of sort of the flip side of this that maybe patients or people are getting immune to this because it's seemingly so common now? Well, I don't think people in the United States are immune to a concern with terrorist attacks in the United States or in North America or maybe even in Europe, if you have friends or family or business associates in Europe. But things that happen further away in Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran or someplace like that, if you don't have a direct connection, yes, I think people do become desensitized to news about the war or in Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere else in the Middle East. And I think there is a desensitizing that sets in, which I I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a problem, not so much, I think, a medical or psychological problem, but it's a political problem because then people lose interest in addressing these issues that really do need to be addressed nationally. For those of us that want to learn more about this, clearly we can read your book. And again, that's Blood That Cries Out from the Earth. Any other resources for practitioners out there that want to learn more about the role of religion and in individual psychology? There are a lot of books coming out. And my book has a good bibliography. If you go on Amazon and you look under books on religious terrorism, I do think, though, that you want books that have been published recently, because I do think, and this is controversial in the area, but so much of the research, earlier research that was done on terrorism was done in the 60s and 70s with politically oriented groups in Europe, primarily and to some extent in the United States, the Beider-Meinhof gang or the Red Brigades or maybe the Weather Underground, something like that, the IRA. But contemporary terrorism is a very different phenomenon. And the models that were developed to understand those much more compact local groups I don't think are useful in the age of the Internet. The Internet has changed the whole scope of terrorism. That would be worth a show in itself. So there are a lot of books out, but I do encourage people to read stuff that's come out in the 21st century since 9-11. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you and to your colleagues. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Dr. James Jones about the psychology of religious terrorism. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to our special segment on disaster medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. 